Let me first say that it is a uh, privilege to be able to speak to you. I thank the elders of Trinity who have allowed me to do this. It truly is a joy, and I thank them for this, and I don't take the opportunity lightly. I would also like to apologize for the cold that I have, which I blame completely on my children and the government, of course, but they are in public schools, so anybody who has a child in schools knows the germs that they are. So I apologize for that, and hopefully the Lord has mercy on you and sustains me through this so that I don't cough and sneeze and do all those disgusting things. Well, as Mark said, uh, we are going to look today at Ephesians chapter 6. Ephesians chapter 6. Now this morning, we're going to briefly look at the armor of God. And in particular, we're going to look at verse 15, and I'm going to focus on verse 15. And that deals with what is called the war sandals or the, the sandals prepared for war. Now hopefully we will see how indispensable this armor is in our lives. That the believer needs the armor of God. Before I get into it, let's pray as we seek God. Father, we are thankful that we can be called your children. It is our prayer that we would hear from you. And we ask that you would clear our minds and our hearts and open our ears so that we would see Christ. We ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fill us with your word that we may praise our triune God. We thank you for being our God and Savior. Amen. Well, before we get into this, I think it's helpful if we get a little background of what's taking place here in the, in the letter to the Ephesians. Paul, obviously, is writing this letter to the church at Ephesus. And just a little quick background so we can see what's taking place in this chapter of what Paul has dealt with in the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a seaport city, which meant that it had thousands of people that would come and go trading and selling, which provided for much of its wealth. But not only that, it was a place that was a hotbed for false teaching and all manner of paganism. Now, the principal reason for this city was a temple, the Temple of Diana, also called the Temple of Artemis. People would flock to this city so that they could come worship this goddess, this goddess of fertility, and also this goddess who is the mother of the earth. Meaning that they sought this woman out, this, this pagan idol, because they felt that she fed the earth, that she cared for all the earth, that she was a sole provider. If that sounds familiar, that's because we see it today when people worship Mother Earth. Very much of the same thing is taking place. And not only that, this city was known for witchcraft. All sorts of witchcraft took place, whether it was spells or hexes, incantations, exorcisms. And we can read about this in Acts 19. For Paul encountered both these evils in Acts 19. Paul came into the city of Ephesus and he preached the gospel of Christ. And those who heard and believed, 
They turned away from their idols. They turned away from their false gods. And they turned and worshipped the true and living God. Now this upset some people in the city. Many of the silversmiths who made their living off making these silver and gold idols, these little trinkets for people to come and to worship Diana with, Paul essentially was taking their business. He was taking their livelihood, their money. And so they were angry with Paul because of this. And we can read about that in the account in the riot that ensued from these converts turning away from this idol worship. And not only that, many of these converts were practitioners of magic. And they came and they took their books, their magic books, and they publicly burned them for all to see, putting away this evil practice. Now, if you think that that concept of that pagan idolatry and that witchcraft is foreign to our thinking, it's not relevant, I would remind you that here in Arizona, we have a similar place that's likened to Ephesus. Think of Sedona. Thousands of people flock to our state just to go to that small town of Sedona so that they can worship nature, so they can find their inner God, so that they can go into some sort of state of being, a higher state of being, so they too can worship a pagan goddess. And it doesn't take much to look around the city of Phoenix before you are exposed to witchcraft. Whether it's seemingly harmless astrology, or if it's tarot card reading, or palm reading, or people going to psychics and psychics telling them exactly what they want to hear. No, this practice, this war that is taking place then is taking place now. And Paul is going to tell these Ephesians that you are in a supernatural war. That this war is more real than maybe what you see. It is taking place behind the scenes, but it is real and it is deadly. It is a war that is demonic. It is a war that is satanic. And Paul is going to give these final instructions, summing up, bringing his letter to a climax, all that he has said. He's going to instruct them that this unseen war is taking place. Now, in light of everything he's written to these Ephesians, he has told them how the triune God has adopted them, how God has saved them by grace through faith unto good works, and how he has taken Jew and Gentile who were formerly hostile to one another and placed them together in one body, a body of unity. And how he's given them the Spirit. And the Spirit has caused them to become imitators of Christ. So that they may do righteous deeds and no longer practice that which is evil. Imagine all that. Paul has been telling them that. And he brings them to this point, And he wants to remind them of this spiritual reality. You are in a war. There is an unseen world that is taking place. And you are part of it. You are a Christian 
And you cannot be passive in this. You are in this war. And he comes to chapter 6, verse 10. And he says, because of the greatness of Christ and what he has done for you. Because you have been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. Be on guard because, verse 10, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Literally, be strengthened in your inner man by the Lord and take up the full or the whole armor of God. And he gives them the reason why in verse 11. He says that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. Stand against the schemes, against the devices, the traps, the snares of their enemy, the devil. And he's already said that that this is a spiritual battle early in the book. But once again, he's reminding them that this battle is real. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers and authorities against the cosmic powers over this present darkness against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places there is a power out there satan is lurking satan is roaming about and he's looking to destroy he's looking to destroy in this war so paul is going to give these final instructions and he's going to instruct them put on the whole armor of God put on the whole armor of Christ this is armor that has been provided by God himself and he tells them you have to appropriate it you have to take it up you have to seize it you have to take up the armor that has been provided Christ's armor Verse 13, once again, he reiterates, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, and then he will lay out what this armor is. He will move from the belt of truth to the breastplate of righteousness. He will go to the sword, the helmet, and the shield. And he will also talk about, verse 15, and this is the portion I'm going to focus on today, the shoes for their feet. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, verse 15, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Paul is going to use a very familiar illustration, a very familiar figure in their culture. He's going to use a Roman guard. And he's going to use that that guard as an illustration of what God's armor is like. And he's going to focus here in verse 15 on the shoes. How often do we think of shoes? But he says the shoes are important. Now, if you know anything about the Roman garb, why the shoes were important, it makes sense why Paul brings it up. You see, the shoes had a purpose. The Romans had these particular type of shoes. It was a thick leather strap that they would have taken what was called hobnails and they would have driven through the leather and they would have protruded out the bottom of the leather forming spikes. 
Think of an athletic cleat like a football cleat or a baseball spike. This is what made their shoe so great. Which This is what made it different so, from so many shoes of the ancient world. These shoes had spikes driven out for the purpose of traction. Paul literally is telling them, take up this armor, put on these shoes that you may have traction. That you won't lose ground. When the schemes of the devil come against you, you literally dig in your feet into the ground. The Roman soldier would have been on uneven ground, uneven terrain. And these shoes with these spikes would have provided the traction they needed to stand firm, to not be pushed back, and not be forced to retreat. Paul has another reason for bringing these shoes into play. These shoes, as I said, were a thick piece of leather that would go around the foot, literally to be bound under and around the foot and around the ankle. And it would act as protection. In ancient warfare, it was not uncommon for the enemy to take branches or wood and sharpen them to a razor-sharp point and to place them under the ground with just a thin layer of dirt over the top. The unsuspecting soldier who had a lesser footwear on would come and he would step on that and it would puncture his foot and he would be rendered useless in the fight. So Paul says, take up these shoes, not only because they give you traction, but they will protect you from the schemes. After all, is this not what Satan does? He hides. He schemes. He makes devices to trap you, to put a snare on you. And the shoe prevented him from doing that. Tie on these sandals so that you don't retreat and so that you are not rendered inoperational. Well, just like the Ephesians had this spiritual war taking place, we too, here in Phoenix, at Trinity Bible Church, face the same war. It is not new. It is ongoing. And we, as Christians, are in the midst of it. My question would be this. How do you know that you have taken up these war sandals? How do you know that you have taken up your war sandals? I think as the schemes come along, as the temptation comes along in each of our lives, and we are put to the test, we react one of two ways. One, we either react as Christ reacted, or two, we act, react as fleshly individuals in a spiritual battle. Let me give you some thoughts on to decipher, to discern whether or not you have taken up the war sandals. For example, maybe this is you. When people get upset with you, whether it's your spouse, your mother, your father, your children, whoever it may be, when they get upset with you, and they will, how do you react? Do you react as Christ, who is gentle and mild, who would patiently listen, gently rebuke, 
train them along? Or are you like someone who holds a grudge? You take whatever sort of verbal cannon fodder is shot your way and you take that and you stew on it. And you become bitter and bitter and more bitter. I've seen this in marriages. Two people that have married a long time but yet one of the spouses is holding a grudge, is bitter about something and has never brought it to light. Or children who hold grudges against their parents because they didn't get their way. They weren't loved the way they thought they should have been. If that's you, this is an indicator that you have not taken up the armor of God. This is an indicator that you are not fighting a spiritual battle with spiritual war implements, but you are fighting it in a fleshly way. How about if you're a leader? And this could be you're a mother or a father, or you could even be a pastor or a boss at your company. And when your authority is questioned, and challenged, and it will be, how do you react? Do you react as Christ, who was silent, who said nothing, who didn't feel that it was necessary to state his case, but instead rested in the authority that was given to him by his Father? Or, Maybe this is you. When your authority is questioned, you slander the person. You speak harsh things against them. And let's face it, slander isn't very hard to do these days. All you need to do is log in and take to social media. This happens more than we think. If this is you, then you have not taken up the war sandals. Or maybe one more, when crisis hits, we all have crises that hit our lives, whether it's spiritual or physical. It can be anything spiritual from repeated sins or deep depression. It can be physical like financial ruin or strain or even disease. Do we, do we act like our Savior at those times? Our Savior, who was tempted by Satan, depended on the Word, depended on God. He didn't depend on his own strength. If we haven't put on the shoes... We may be tempted to make our own decisions at those times. We may be tempted to think that we don't need the Word of God. That we don't need prayer. That we don't need meditation on the Word. That we don't need to fast. We make poor decisions in those moments. 
If you do those things, and we are all guilty of these things, remember, Christ has provided us with the resources necessary to fight the devil. He has provided us His armor. He says, take it up. Put on the whole armor that you can fight, that you can stand against the schemes of the devil. Second point. Stand on the foundation of peace. We want to stand on the foundation of peace. Look at verse 15 again. And as, for, as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. Now this clause right here, put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace, or with the readiness given by the gospel of peace, has caused some bewilderment. Not everybody is in agreement on what this verse is saying. Some take this verse to mean that you are to put on the war sandals so that you can be ready, that you can be prepared to go and preach the gospel of peace. They look at this and they say, Paul is obviously saying we're to take this gospel and at any moment we're to go, we're to advance and evangelize. That is one conclusion. One of the problems is, is we look at this word ready, and ready, given whatever context it's in, can mean different things. So you can't simply just do a word study and say that ready means this in all cases, because context always determines what the author intends. So is Paul telling these Ephesian believers to go, to be ready, to preach the gospel? Or is he telling them something else? Some of you, probably in your marginal notes in your Bible, editors like to help us out. And you may have Isaiah 52.7 or Romans 10.15 in a marginal note. Which says, how lovely on the mountains are the feet of them that go and proclaim good news and bring peace, or proclaim peace. As I said, that, that is an option. I do not believe, though, that is what Paul is saying here. I do not believe that this is what Paul is driving at when he says that you can stand against the schemes of the devil by putting on the armor. I think he's going for something else. I believe that Paul is telling them that this readiness is not a readiness to go, but it's a foundational readiness. It's a foundational preparedness. It's the ground that they will stand on. For example, this word readiness is used in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament and it's translated in some familiar passage you may not, that you may know. For example, Psalm 89.14 says, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Clearly here, this word ready, that is translated foundation, deals with the undergirding of God's throne. Of God's throne. You, have the, 
You have the righteousness and justice, which are the underpinnings, the foundation of, on which God's throne sits. Likewise, in Ezra 2.68, this is at the, for the building of the temple. It says, in some of the heads of the father's households, they offered willingly for the house of God to be restored on its foundation. Once again, we have the word readiness, but they translated it foundation. Context determines the meaning of the word. Clearly, this is the foundation for the temple. Let me give you an example. In landscape, there is a term that's called turf preparation. Now, when you hear that, you might think turf preparation is about tilling the soil, aerating, fertilization, and so on. And it does include that. But turf preparation is first and foremost deals with grading a firm foundation. It's about laying a foundation so that grass can be placed upon it, so it doesn't wash away, so it doesn't fall in the sinkholes, so it doesn't become a muddy mess. This, I believe, is what Paul is saying. He's saying this, this gospel of peace, put on the war sandals so that you have a foundational readiness given by, provided by, the gospel of peace. I believe that is his point. I like an older Bible translation that says, with your feet fitted with the gospel of peace as a firm footing. So I think that Paul is telling them that this foundation that is given by the gospel is what you're to combat the devil with. The armor is tied to this foundation. He says the foundation of the gospel of peace. Now when we come to texts like this, we have to ask questions. We have to say, when he says gospel of peace, what is he emphasizing? And you could say, well, this is the gospel. This is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it certainly includes that. But I believe the gospel, in its totality, has many facets, many aspects to it. The gospel is like a diamond. It's like a diamond that has many dimensions, many facets put, many multidimensional looks. The gospel includes so much more than just the death, burial, and resurrection. For example, the gospel is propitiation. Christ died on your behalf and took your wrath so that you can live. So the wrath of God is appeased. The gospel is justification. Christ was found guilty on your behalf so that you can be declared right and not guilty before God. The gospel is adoption. We were an enemy of God. Christ died in our place. He is the mediator between God and man. And He brought God and man together through His blood written on a declaration and made us at peace with God which adopted us into the family of God. So I believe Paul is emphasizing that the gospel of peace is the key. 
peace. We stand on peace. Let's not overlook peace. How often does Paul start his letters with grace, mercy, and peace to you from God, our Father, and our Lord Jesus Christ? These words have meaning. He's emphasizing the peace that we share. The Ephesians, at one time, were enemies of God. And Christ took them out of darkness. He took them out of death. And He made them reconciled to God. The peace of Christ. Ephesians 2 says that Christ Himself was their peace. Christ came to make peace. We just celebrated Christmas. And we celebrate the coming of Christ. What did the angels declare that night? Glory to God in the highest. Goodwill to men and peace on earth, right? He pro- the angels proclaimed peace. Christ came to be our peace. So therefore, I believe Paul is telling them, fit your feet with the armor of God and stand on the foundation of the gospel of peace. Stand on that foundation and nothing more. Peace has brought us together with God. In a word, we have fellowship with God through Christ. We have fellowship with one another. Christ has broken down that wall of hostility and made us as one people. As one people because of peace. So how does that help us knowing this in the here and now? How does it help you as someone living day to day that you're supposed to put on these shoes, these war sandals, and stand on the foundation of peace? What does that look like? When Satan brings temptation, when he comes to scheme against you, remember this. Peace with God means that He has brought Jew and Gentile together as one. One body, one bread, one church. Look around. Look around here at Trinity. We have believers of every age. We have young. We have old. We have people from different backgrounds. Different states, different countries. We have people with different skin color. And the gospel of peace is what has brought us together. When you're in the midst of it, don't underestimate your church. We need one another. We have people all through this church that stand with you that will stand alongside you, that will pray for you, that will counsel you, that will sit with you when you need, whether it's times of joy or times of hardship. When you are in the battle, and we are every day, remember, we have peace with one another. We have Christ. We have each other. The church has been put here as a hospital to help, to help in those times.
Also, we need to rest in this. We need to rest in this, that peace with God means He sees your pain and He remembers your pain. Peace with God means He remembers your pain and He sees your pain. All those harsh words have been brought against you. All those things that have been said, slandered, everything that has ever been done to you, God remembers because He is your Father. He loves you and like any good earthly father, remembers those who hurt you. I don't say this so that we can rejoice over those who have hurt us. No, to the contrary. I say this as a comfort. Peace with God in the time of the battle means that He remembers. He remembers. Just think, He said, vengeance and retribution are mine. In due time, their foot shall slip. But you, as a believer, have taken up the armor of God. You stand firmly on the foundation of the gospel of peace. Now this peace cannot be taken lightly. It cannot be minimized. There are some who do not have peace with God. There are some here who have never known that. They've never experienced it. They're enemies of God. They're outside the kingdom. They're outside the love of God. They need this peace. God has said that if you are not with Him, you are an enemy. And that is the most dreadful thing and reality that any person could have to be an enemy of God. Now please listen. God has said that He is angry and vengeful and that He has wrath waiting for those who are His enemies. And that they are storing up wrath for themselves because of their unrepentant heart. If that is you, listen to me please. Do not leave without turning to God. Do not let one more day go by as an enemy. Life is fleeting. Life changes at a moment's notice. We have no control over it. Control over it. Many can attest to the way life happens. But here's the good news that Christ is peace himself, and he has come, and he says, turn to me now, for God is gracious and merciful and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will welcome you. He will, he will give you the peace that everybody needs. In conclusion, I would say this. That as we go on our day, as we are engaged in this this war, there are times when we lose the battle, but the war has been won. 
Christ has secured the victory, and we are victors. And though you may not feel like it at times, and though days are hard, and we do continue to battle, we can say it like this, not we win, but we won. We have won. Let's pray.